Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Levin. Welcome. Good morning. Welcome to February. Pediatric Grand Rounds, February 7th, 2018. Um, it is uh, our February Grand Rounds. I will, um, I will hope, as usual, that our speaker is compelling enough that you'll find them interested and keep your laptops closed uh, during the presentation. We have um, a great presentation today, and as usual, much activity around um, the care of newborns exposed to opioids. You may have seen a photo during the, during the commercial interruption earlier of Dr. Chapman and a cast of others with Senator, uh, Representative Annie Keister at the uh, Mothers in Recovery program a couple weeks ago. Also in that photo was Kate McMillan, who is in the Leadership Preventative Medicine Residency Program and whose uh, paper on rooming in practices for this population was published yesterday online first in JAMA Pediatrics with Dr. Holmes as well. So I don't see Kate, but um, good activity or good recognition nationally for the work being done here. And more regionally, um, folks from across New England, other hospitals, came to DHMC to learn about our practices. And um, Brianna White, our nurse educator and Chad inpatient, wanted to specifically thank Cassie Mae Jelenas, who's one of the nurses on Chad Inpatient Unit, for participating in the eating, sleeping, consoling training used for neonatal abstinence syndrome babies at this training. She agreed to be a facilitator of the assessment tool in simulated cases uh, on those training dates. She also presented to a group of about 40 participants on two days in a row on the implementation tool and how we rolled it out in Chad. She answered questions, gave suggestions on implementation, and helped to brief in using the tool, and she did a particularly fantastic job. So if you see Kate around somewhere today, or if you see Cassie May up on the inpatient unit, uh, thanks and kudos. I'm sure our speaker will also be sharing some kudos of many of the teammates he works with in this with this population. So I don't know if Steve has presented Grand Round since I've been here. I, he has certainly presented, but this may be the first time at the podium I can remember. Um, but Dr. Chapman, Dr. Stephen Chapman, is uh, a native of Columbus, Ohio, but grew up in Hanover, a uh, Hanover High School graduate before he matriculated at Brown University for undergrad and University of Pennsylvania for his uh, medical degree. Uh, where he was also a National Health Service scholar. He completed his pediatrics training at the University of Washington Seattle Children's Hospital Medical Center uh, program and then served four years in, in Lawrence, Mass. at the Greater Lawrence Community Health Center, also as a National Health Service scholar. Um, went back west for about almost a decade to um, Port Angeles, Washington, uh, serving as an um, instructor and clinical associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington, also having served at Tufts and UMass during his time in Lawrence. But uh, home came calling in 2008 and returned here to, to Geisel as an assistant professor and to Chad, where he has held numerous roles, continues to be the director of the Boyle Community Pediatrics Program, and uh, regionally is the president of New Hampshire Pediatric Society, in addition to, I think, a little bit of the roles he'll talk about today related to caring for moms and babies in recovery. Uh, uh, important co-investigator on a new $2 million grant, $2.5 million grant that came from the uh, uh, 
Cures Act. It's, it's federal funding f flowing through the state that will be a two-year program that Steve and others in chat will have key roles in. So uh, an important update on an important topic. Steve, take it away. <laughs> okay, so stay there, though. Great. Thanks, Keith. Um, and thank you, everybody, for, uh, for showing up this morning. Um, it feels like this is, Kathy asked me to do this last summer, and it feels like this has become a more and more apropos topic as we've gotten closer to it. I have to say I chickened out with the title. Um, um, I thought about calling it Inside the Drug-Infested Den, um, <laughs> but I thought, you know what, I'm not going to embrace that label um, and call it that. Um, but Kathy did tell me I needed to focus, and so I am going to focus a little bit. It, the title is... Um, Northern New England. I'm really going to talk about New Hampshire uh, mostly, and I'm going to talk about the outpatient experience. I'm not going to. There's a lot of great work going on inside the hospital. I'm not going to talk about um, some of the wonderful work that Allison Holmes and Bonnie Whalen and Kay McMillan and Dee Sheets and others have done about eating, sleeping, consoling, and how we identify NAS and how we care for babies and rooming in and sleeping in and the cuddlers. Um, I'm really going to talk about um, um, events outside outside the hospital walls. So um, this is a little bit of an outline and objectives. Um, we're going to go through uh, and, and hope that we appreciate some of the history and factors that contributed to the opioid crisis. I'm going to talk a little bit about the opioid epidemic in New Hampshire using um, the hotspot um, uh, uh, data, which is a report that I will talk about that's out of the uh, um, clinical trials network and other local data sources. Um, consider the value of specific community-based responses that we'll talk about. And then finally, we'll spend a fair amount of time talking about um, uh, outpatient and community efforts to support pregnant women and parents with young children in early opiate recovery. So, you know, these words get bandied about a lot, um, epidemic, crisis. And even as I was pulling together these slides and these talk, this talk, um, you know, I, I thought, you know, do these words really apply? Um, uh, and... Um, and I think they do. This past year, we've seen 64,000 deaths due to, opio due to um, drug overdoses, most of which are um, due to opioids. If you compare this to other, uh, other crises and other issues, there were 58,000 U.S. soldiers who died in the entire Vietnam War. 55,000 Americans died of car crash deaths in 1972, which was the peak year for automobile deaths. The peak year for deaths from HIV and AIDS in 1995 was 43,000. And the highest number of Americans ever killed in a single year was in 1993, the peak of those deaths, and that was 40,000. So if we compare it to other crises and epidemics that we've, that we've faced in the past, in terms of magnitude, it certainly does qualify. Uh, here's, a, here's a graph. Um, it shows where we've come since um, 2000 in terms of total U.S. drug deaths. And that's, uh, that's a pretty straight upward trend, um, 64,000 again um, last year. Preliminary numbers for 2017 show no lessening. Um, we're still up at that, in that range. If you break that down um, and look at um, what, are, what substances are involved, um, you can see um, that uh, that blue line 
is synthetic opioids. Now that's largely fentanyl and fentanyl um, analogs. Um, heroin has also been spiking over the last eight or nine years. Um, and I wish I had a pointer, but you can see that steady line going up there, um, natural and semi-synthetic opioids. Those are um, prescription opioids. Great. Thanks, Keith. Right here. That's, that's, those are prescription opioids. So we can see the real peak lately has been in fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about race and experience of a drug epidemics. And, and this um, epidemic in particular. Um, so this has largely been, um, increasing rates have largely been experienced by white and, and, and American Indians um, going back from 2000, steady, steady increase. Um, Hispanics and Asians have, have not had the, the um, same level of increase. And among the African-American black community, you can actually see a decrease um, around after um, 2000 and 2005 um, in opioid deaths. But that's a changing trend. Um, increasingly, we're seeing um, deaths among African-Americans. And there, while there's not been a catch up there, um, it's increasingly difficult to characterize this as a purely white experience. Now, when we look at the response to um, when we look at the response to drug use and we look at um, the law enforcement side of things, there is uh, an enormous disparity um, still. Um, if you look at past month illicit drug use comparing whites to blacks, they're essentially the same, 9.5% for whites, 10.5% for blacks. But when we look at, at um, arrests, um, they're not the same. Um, in 2013, two and a half times the rate of arrests um, for black populations as for whites. Incarceration rates are even uh, more dramatically skewed with six to ten times the rates as whites. I'm not going to go greatly into that, but I think it's really important to, to mention, to mention um, you know, that, that issue. So we see it. We see the opioid epidemic with people in the news, people who have um, that we've seen who have died. Heath Ledger, Tom Petty recently. We've also seen people who've bounced back because it's not, it's not always um, recovery is possible. And we've seen people who've battled through it um, and sang the national anthem at the Super Bowl. <laughs> Continue doing what he does. <laughs> Uh, Demi Lovato, my kids love her, <laughs> Carrie Fisher. But it's also in our backyard. It's right, right in front of us all the time. Here, this was uh, our patients, our story that came, that was um, in December um, about Ashley, um, who's got two kids. Um, she gave birth here. Um, she became addicted to opioids, prescription opioids, as a 14-year-old um, and um, was not in recovery um, during her pregnancy, um, had been arrested, um, uh, did not have a secure place to live. Um, and she enrolled through the OB, a prenatal uh, clinic here. She enrolled in what was the perinatal addition treatment program and is now the Moms in Recovery program. 
and she's in current recovery and, and doing wonderfully. Um, still maintaining her addiction, but she's one of our patients. She's one of the people that we see every single day and her kids. So, and you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? So opium, morphine has been around forever, over 5,000 years. Um, it comes from the sap or the latex of the immature pod of the poppy. Um, that latex that's dripping out there, most of them have about 12% of opium in it. Um, that's morphine, the molecule morphine there on the right. Um, it was first um, um, isolated and extracted as an active ingredient by a 22-year-old German named Friedrich Sir Turner. He gave it to himself, three boys, a dog, and a mouse as an experiment. Um, the boys um, uh, all made it. I don't know about the dog and the mouse. Um, uh, but that was, that's still considered the first extraction of an active ingredient um, in modern pharmacology. Um, he named morphine after Morpheus, um, who's the Greek god of dreams. And um, heroin itself, who knows where heroin came from? Where did, where, where, did we for, where did we first encounter heroin and how did that enter the stage? Does anyone know the story? So it was developed and, and marketed by Bayer, a German pharmaceutical, at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century as a non-addictive alternative um, to morphine that was really good at cough suppression. It was marketed to, as something you can give your kids And here's glyco. It's too small to see, but it says um, this is scientifically developed and scientifically extracted. The problem has been solved about cough. And it was marketed and sold pharmaceutically right up and through, um, through World War I. Um, paragoric, um, not heroin, but it had um, alcohol and uh, morphine. And here's the dosing that you can give. Um, to a five-day-old, a two-week-old, five-year-old, five and adults. Um, but despite, despite having, um, you know, the pharmaceutical industry coming up with um, items that we can give and that we, things to treat pain, as we entered into the 1980s and 1990s, it became really recognized um, that we had not been really paying good attention to pain and hadn't really been addressing it the way we could. And it became recognized as a neglected problem. Those of us who trained um, during those years will remember um, the real emphasis on identifying and um, treating pain. Kathleen Foley out of um, Memorial Sloan Kettering was a real champion here, particularly for treating pain in cancer patients. Um, and she viewed it, um, this is a, a quote that she, um, of hers, we view pain relief as a human rights issue. And, um, and this was a really well-intended and legitimate um, concern. Um, it was really thought of as uh, untreated pain, particularly cancer pain, became a major focus. Um, and it became thought of, and we, you know, we were trained to think of uh, pain as a fifth vital sign, something we would routinely um, assess and address. Um, JACO became very strongly involved in 2001 with some hospital standards. And you know when JACO comes in, this is something that you really need to pay attention to. Um, and um, they, it was pretty 
pretty clearly said that patients have the right to appropriate assessment and management of pain. Pain is a fifth vital sign and that we need to communicate with all patients that they have a right to pain relief. Um, so in this new, new focus on emphasis on pain, um, the pharmaceutical industry stepped in and um, I mean, before I show that, um, one, of the, one of the top referred um, referenced articles um, in, in JCO and in the industry was a letter in 1980 in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's been cited in 2016, it had been cited 906 times. Um, and if, but if you go back and look at the publication itself, this is it. Um, it was a letter um, by Porter and Jick um, to the New England Journal, and they describe 11,800 patients um, who received at least one narcotic preparation, and they conclude that despite widespread use of the narcotic drugs in hospitals, the development of addiction is rare in medical patients with no history of addiction. Um, this was picked up by pharmaceutical industry and was um, referenced quite a bit. Um, the pharmaceutical industry called, um, would quote this as saying that less than 1% of people who were prescribed um, opiates developed an addiction. Purdue Pharma um, developed OxyContin in 1996 and um, they used that letter um, and that argument um, strongly um, with their uh, marketing staff. Um, they developed a bonus system for sales reps. They were making between 15,000 um, and 200 to 240,000 per year. That was most of their um, pay. Um, they branded promotional items for physicians, stuffed toys, fishing hats, CDs. Um, there were um, over 40 um, CME events that trained 5,000 physicians and physicians assistants on how to prescribe OxyContin. Um, their sales um, shot up from 48 million in 1996 to 1.1 billion in 2001. They spent $200 million to market and promote OxyContin in 2001. Now in 2007, um, they, they um, lost a, a lawsuit, a liability lawsuit, um, a $600 million lawsuit um, for uh, deceptive advertising. Their sales though over the next three years tripled. So despite that lawsuit, um, you know, they still continued to market and sell. There's the stuffed animal. That is, his name is Oxy. So let's talk about New Hampshire. Um, the New Hampshire story is a unique story. Um, we are second in the United States, although 2017 data put us third in the United States in the severity of the opioid epidemic in terms of deaths, and first for fentanyl-related overdoses per capita. Um, we're second to last in access to addiction treatment. Texas is the only state that is uh, has less access than us. Um, between five and seven percent of New Hampshire residents who are in need of treatment actually get treatment. Um, rural communities are high needs due to lack of available treatment options for opioid use disorder patients. And the number of buprenorphine providers, medication assisted treatment providers, remains the lowest in New England. We are also the live free or die state. Um, without broad-based taxes for our government. And we're very close to Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is a central hub um, for um, New Hampshire supply and drug trafficking. So I want to talk about um, 
The Northeast node of the Clinical Trials Network, which came into being in 2015, there are 13 clinical trials networks that are part of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And their research partnerships were NIDA, researchers, and community-based partners develop, evaluate, and disseminate new prevention and treatment options for substance use disorders in community-based medical settings. Um, it is really a remarkable group. It's led by Lisa Marsh. They are on the left um, with Andrea Meyer, Bethany McLellan, um, and Olivia Walsh um, being the administrative team. There's a core of a uh, group of uh, core investigators um, with uh, Daisy Goodman in the upper right, who's done a great deal of work on perinatal addiction. Um, uh, Artis Olson there at the bottom, and some other faces that you will recognize pediatrics, and um, really a remarkable group of researchers with social media uh, research skills. Um, there's a, a, a data hygienist um, and some people doing just some wonderful um, epidemiologic work. So that's a really remarkable team. Um, this group pulled together um, uh, what's called the Hotspot Report. Um, it is a NDUS or National Drug Early Warning System um, report, and it's a combination of epidemiologic data, local data, um, and then some interviews, some qualitative information. Um, there have been two phases of this. The first phase came out in the summer, and the second phase just came out at the end of 2017. Qualitative interviews were done in six counties, the six counties in New Hampshire um, that have been strongly affected by the opioid epidemic. Um, the study participants, many of them were opioid consumers. Um, ED folks and first responders broken down evenly between um, uh, uh, firefighters, EMS, and police. So we'll go through a little bit of that qualitative data. Um, epidemiologic data, this is from the New Hampshire Office of Chief Medical Examiners. Tom Andrew, a, who, a former pediatrician, um, was the chief medical examiner as the opioid crisis um, really came about. And you can see that those um, uh, that the New Hampshire experience parallels the national experience. What we've seen really is a transition from prescription medication to harder stuff as prescription medication, as we've done a little bit better job in um, how we've prescribed medication. Um, these are quotes from consumers or users, active users. Um, Oxycontin is pretty much something of the past. If you're going to do it, Everybody's looking for, can you get the stuff with fentanyl in it? Because the other stuff, especially in New Hampshire, you spend usually, let's see, $150, $200 to buy 10 bags of heroin. If it's not good, you could do all of that just to get high. People are spending $200 just to be high for a few hours. If it's good and it has fentanyl in it, you can get high three or four times. So it's a supply issue with the prescription medications um, not being as available, and then uh, uh, um, a financial issue as well, pushing people towards fentanyl. Um, if you break down the deaths, um, and uh, these are from drug tests, these are from um, drug testing from autopsies, um, data that it, 2017 data is still coming in because it can take three to four months. Um, but you can see that fentanyl is at the top of what we're seeing right now in New Hampshire. Fentanyl, no other drugs are, do, are responsible for 166 deaths. And fentanyl with other drugs um, is, also, is, due, is also responsible for another 113 deaths. So I went back and forth about what elephant in the room cartoon to put in. 
Um, it feels like we're starting to grapple with this as a medical, uh, as, as the 800-pound gorilla eight, uh, of, of healthcare delivery in New Hampshire. You know, we are the largest healthcare delivery system in New Hampshire. Um, and um, I also put this in because carfentanil um, is an elephant tranquilizer, and that's making an appearance in New Hampshire as well. That's being cut into heroin, um, and that's popping up in autopsy reports um, in 2017. Carfentanil is 100 times more potent than fentanyl. Fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent than, than morphine. Um, so this is really, really powerful stuff. Here's a picture of a lethal dose of heroin on the left and a lethal dose of fentanyl on the right, and carfentanil is 100 times more powerful than the, the tube on the right. Also, New Hampshire, um, live for your die state. We don't spend a lot of money. Um, this, this is public health treatment spending per state, um, comparing us, New Hampshire, at the top um, to other states in New England. And you can see that we spend um, about $3.66 per capita, which is significantly less than other states. Here's some interview data um, of lifetime substance use and age of first use. And this is a take-home point, if you remember nothing else from this. These are of active users of heroin and fentanyl in New Hampshire over this last year. The age of first use, and the full sample is all of those that were interviewed. The subsample are those that had more in-depth interviews. But if you look at the full sample data there in the red box on the left, th these are folks who began using alcohol and marijuana on average um, uh, before the age of 14 with a standard deviation of 3.8 and 2.8. So these are f folks who presented in pediatric practices and presented in pediatrics and were really young teenagers when they first started to develop the substance misuse issue. Um, these are kids that we're seeing in continuity clinic. They're kids that we're seeing in the emergency room. They're kids that we're seeing maybe in CF clinic. Um, they're, they're, um, they are passing through pediatrics on their way to adulthood. And there may well be signs, there may be well opportunities for us to engage. Um, some of the work that we've done in general pediatrics, expert um, asking about and talking about substance misuse issues, I think is something that we need to really continue and really need to develop as something that we do um, more broadly. Here's another quote. I hurt my knee playing football in high school, so I got painkillers. I was getting them prescribed, and then I started abusing them. And then I stopped getting them prescribed, and so I sought them out on the street. And you know, it's just like that's what everyone was doing at that time. Everyone was doing painkillers, oxys, and stuff like that. Here's a turnip plot um, of age of illicit substance use initiation for the hotspot participants. So again, these are those 76 um, folks who were interviewed over the last year. And the red bar are the means. Um, and you can see a progression, again, starting with alcohol and cannabis, um, um, moving up through uh, different substances, including cocaine, stimulant medication, and heroin and fentanyl on the right. A little closer look at age of initiation by opioid type, prescription opioids, and this is abuse of opioids, prescription opioids, it's not any use as um, prescribed. But you can see the mean 
um, is 21.1 years, but there are quite a few blue dots below that 21. In fact, if you, if you did a median bar, that bar would be lower than 21 years of age. Um, moving on to heroin and then fentanyl. So that the progression pattern um, um, we see with these data. I had a C-section when I had my son, and I was given pain meds. Then I went back to work, and I dislocated my shoulder lifting a patient and had surgery. Got more pain meds. They just were very quick to say, you work in the medical field, you're not going to abuse these. And they hand them out. And then, then when I went to my last checkup, and they said, oh, you're all good, no more prescription meds. I'm like, well, wait a minute. No, 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 you can't stop these. I've been abusing all of them. I'm going to go into withdrawal. And then I had to start buying off the street. So I want to highlight a few New Hampshire responses um, to this problem that we're facing and the, the pain and um, heartache that's out there. Um, Safe Station is a response of uh, firefighters and EMS staff in um, Manchester, New Hampshire. Um, Dan Gooden, who's the chief of uh, the fire department, down there said that they used to do uh, CPR once a month, and they were starting to do it multiple times in a day. And they had, were starting to get friends and family members who were um, being affected by the opioid crisis, and they were responding to that far more than they were to fires. So they developed this partnership with the recovery and treatment community where they said, you know what, if you walk in, we'll do an assessment, we'll get some vitals, um, we'll get you triaged, and we'll get you care. Now, they've, done, they've seen now over 3,000 people, um, and it's safe to say that it's been very successful from an access standpoint. It's also safe to say they've really been overwhelmed, and they're going through some growing pains about how to really get folks into care. Um, Dan Gooden was standing right next to President Trump um, last fall when Trump announced the opioid epidemic as a public health crisis. Um, um, and I think Dan Gooden, as well as other people, are still waiting for a more robust response from the feds about how to support Safe Station and other, other initiatives. These are the hands um, of the mom of one of my patients. She has four kids, healthy kids. Um, and about a year ago, she started bringing in foster kids as well. And I asked her, like, what are you doing? You're busy enough. You've got four kids. You're juggling all these things. Why are you taking foster kids now? I mean, I'm just curious about that story. And she said that four years ago, um, she had a brother that died of a heroin overdose. And then a, a year ago, her second brother died of a heroin overdose. And she was sad. She was furious. She was frustrated. She was angry. And she said, screw it. I am going to do something. And she started taking in foster kids. And I've been seeing her own kids and her foster kids. And that's her hand. And that's the hand of one of her, one of the, one of the babies that she's taken in. Um, Narcan has been one of the responses, um, making Narcan more available um, and to reverse an overdose. Um, you know, I've written Narcan prescriptions for the schools in, um, in the Dresden School District. Um, and it's a good response, but it's no panacea. Here's a quote. Um, you feel fucking miserable and hate whoever did it to you. The only effects I've witnessed after you use it is the person is instantly sick. The thing is once, they're in instant withdrawal. 
the first thing they're going to do when they leave the hospital is they're going to go out and find some heroin to make themselves feel better. I've always told people that if I was ODing, try and get me back on my own and worst case use Narcan, but I don't want it used on me. Um, so there's this real sense that, that people do not want people do not want to have to get Narcan because it takes you not just right out of overdose, but it puts you into immediate withdrawal. There were a few people, um, Bethany was telling me, um, who referred to, um, it sounds like an urban myth, um, and I thought it was, but she assures me that it's not, that there are these Lazarus parties um, where you get as close to death as you can. You really want to push the edge of the envelope. And there are oxygen tanks. There's Narcan there just in case of emergency. No one wants the Narcan. Everyone wants the oxygen to be brought back. Um, but there was more than one person who talked about these, um, these Lazarus parties um, down, in, down in Manchester. Here's a letter written by one of my heroes, um, Julie Kim, um, wrote this in the Huffington Post last year. Um, and um, she, this is, a, this is a great example for advocacy. Um, cancer is not the biggest threat to my pediatric patients. We can cure cancer. Almost 90% of children diagnosed with cancer will survive. The biggest threat to my patients is their parents' addictions. Parental addiction affects one-third of my patients, one-third. Um, this is a New Hampshire response where, where um, Dr. Kim not just is taking care of her patients, but she's getting to a national audience and saying, look, you know what, this, this is a problem that we all face. This mom may not be or this dad may not be my patient, but she's making... Um, you know, really a, the, a powerful tautology that what hurts my patients is bad for my patients and we need to do something about it. So I count that in my top list of New Hampshire responses. Um, this is, this is um, uh, EMS and police responders in Laconia, New Hampshire. Laconia has 16,000 people. Um, there was a police officer there, Eric Adams, who was on the drug task force. I mean, literally his job was to kick down doors and arrest people, and he was noticing he was doing the same thing over and over again to the same people and seeing more and more deaths. And he said, went to his police chief, and he said, you know what, um, I want to change my role. I would like to um, become um, uh, a, a licensed drug counselor, and I want to get people into treatment. I don't want to arrest them. I don't want to throw them into jail. And, um, and that's what he does now. Um, his, he drives a, an unmarked Crown Victoria that he um, goes to, responds in instead of a police car. He has this card, um, he had cards made up that says the Laconia Police Department recognizes that substance misuse is a disease. We understand you can't fight this alone. And there he is um, on the phone trying to get someone into treatment. Another New Hampshire response. So I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about um, uh, babies and mothers in early recovery. Um, and and this, these are not New Hampshire data, um, but this is from a JAMA article out of Michigan um, a year ago. And it, it looks at NAS rates and maternal opioid use rates um, comparing urban to rural settings. The top line, the blue line, um, are rural settings. And you can see um, that NAS rates and maternal opioid use rates are significantly um, 
more of an issue um, in rural areas. These are um, data, nationally representative data, um, from an all-payer sample of hospital discharges. So, you know, it reflects um, really what discharge codes were being, were being used, um, but I think there's no question that rural areas are experiencing this um, more acutely. So I want to talk a, a bit about the perinatal addiction treatment program, which has a new name. We thought that, that who wants to be in a perinatal addiction treatment program? Let's think of something a little more aspirational and a little um, uh, something, a program perhaps that you might want to be in. So we call, it's now called Moms in Recovery. Um, it's a regional referral center. And it really came about in 2013. Um, uh, Kathy Milliken and Daisy Goodman really came up with the idea of doing some integrated care. You know, we ask moms and we ask people to go to so many different places and OB care is here, recovery care is here, pediatric care is somewhere else and you need to go sign up for WIC and make sure you have health insurance and that car, you need to have that fixed because you need to make all these appointments. Um, and, we, and so the idea was doing um, an integrated model. If we were going to design care from a patient's perspective, Instead of a department or a hospital perspective, what would that look like? So the integrated care model includes maternity care, um, medication-assisted treatment with buprenorphine, psychiatric evaluation and treatment, case management, which includes uh, recovery coaches, social supports, and pediatric care. The goals of the program are in OB to do universal prenatal screening for drugs and alcohol exposure using SBIRT, and we work side, pediatrics work side by side with the OB department to implement SBIRT in OB just as we did SBIRT in general pediatrics. Increase access to substance use treatment and comprehensive behavioral health care for pregnant and parenting women. <laughs> Increase the number of parents in sustained recovery by providing access to needed supports, including childhood intervention, housing, and vocational training. Ultimately, reverse the intergenerational nature of addiction and decrease adverse childhood events, or ACEs, and then decrease the burden on the foster care system. So those, those are the overarching program goals. Um, here's a typical program day, and this is actually developed um, since um, um, there are now multiple days with different programs, but this is a typical day. So program development. Uh, program development meeting um, for an hour, talking about what, what we'll do in the program. Um, then women start to arrive around 9.30 for the 10 a.m. group. Um, as they come in, some will get urine drug screens. Everyone gets a urine drug screen while they're there, um, and those who arrive early start to get theirs on arrival. Then there's a group treatment for an hour, um, which is a recovery group. Um, addiction treatment, psychoeducation, sometimes guest speakers. Um, same group meeting, so it's, there's some peer-to-peer -peer that develops within that group. From 11 to 12.30, there are individual visits um, with psychiatry for medicine visits. There's individual therapy with some of the therapists out there. Terry LaRock is out there now. Um, case management, prenatal care with Daisy Goodman from OB. Well, child care, I'm going out there right after Grand Rounds and seeing three kids um, um, doing their well-child visits. Um, uh, and um, at 12.30, um, there's another group. It's a group for postpartum women, so women who have delivered. Um, and this group has more of a focus on parenting education, relapse prevention, 
We are using the nurturing parenting um, curriculum for that. Um, what we call playtime, which is really childcare, so that moms, uh, uh, which is, um, you know, moms can drop off their kids in a supervised setting at the end, and so they'll be, moms are free to participate without the distraction of having to care for their children or to have someone else's child crawl on their lap in group. Um, and then from 1.30 to 2.30, individual meetings, individual visits. Again, um, uh, that's when buprenorphine is, uh, prescriptions are given at the very end. Um, food shelf, diaper bank, and donated items are available. And at the very end, there's a treatment team meeting um, where we talk about who we saw and um, how we're working together. Um, what happens is a lot of work on repairing relationships, and the moms will talk about this. Um, uh, and it's a focus of a lot of the groups. Recovery groups provide a foundation for so a sober network of support. Learning group skills is key to success, the ability to give and accept constructive feedback, talking about the battles, talking about progress, and developing a culture of respect, appreciation, and caring versus a culture of criticism, competition, and judgment. Repairing parenting is also a major, major focus of the groups in the program. Um, substance use disorders in women are, are associated with, um, in, in almost all cases, with histories of adverse childhood events. Um, chronic and repetitive abuse correlate strongly with severity and earlier age of substance use disorder onset. Um, as I say, we use the circle of security curriculum, which is an early intervention model. Um, it's evidence-based, endorsed by SAMHSA. Uh, it's a six-week curriculum. Um, community partnerships is a key part of the program. Um, Upper Valley Haven provides a food shelf and helps with dental care. Twin Pines has four housing units, and some of the moms um, have housing at public housing provided by Twin Pines. The Family Place helps with um, uh, group facilitation and takes referrals. Women Health Resource Center is a diaper bank, clothing, and baby supplies that are available. Um, WISE is, um, has an open door for domestic violence and sexual assault prevention referrals. Um, we're working on trying to get them on site. Um, Good Beginnings, um, home visitation from Good Beginnings and the VNA, and their uh, second growth um, trains and provides recovery coach network. There are two re new recovery coaches over the last couple of weeks who have gotten involved with the program. So what are we seeing? 120 women have come through. 8.3 of those are currently pregnant. Um, and of those, um, 110 women, we've had um, 110 births, um, four miscarriages, and one case of fetal demise, out of 120 women, I should say. Here are some data um, on urine toxicology. And this is um, uh, admission to program, nearly 80% positive, not surprising. Third trimester, it's about 30%. And at delivery, this is meconium analysis. Um, the primary substance for most of the moms is heroin on admission. Um, prescription opioids is number two on the list and non-prescribed buprenorphine is number three on the list. 95% of the moms um, are using prescription opioids at entry um, as not prescribed, so that's an abuse of prescription opioids. 62% are um, endorsed using marijuana. Smoking is a big issue. 80% of moms um, smoke cigarettes um, on admission. Um, so it's not perfect. 
You know, it's, it's, you know there's 30% still um, having positive tox screens and 30% um, positive meconians. But um, you might argue that's a significant, um, that's some significant progress made. Treatment retention, so out of those 120 women, how long do they stay in the program postpartum? At six weeks, most are still there, over 80% come to, um, are still coming to group, still having the postpartum visit. It starts to dwindle though. Um, that six weeks to three months is not a big time period, but you have 15% um, dropout um, during that period. And at one year, um, a little below 50%. Now, some of that's not surprising. There are some moms who are getting into stable recovery and um, are now, no longer on buprenorphine or getting it from another prescriber and are back in the workforce and, and doing better. Um, I think there's a real opportunity here and, I, and we need to look at this a little bit more about what is happening with those moms. Are they, how, what pediatric practices are they coming to? How many are coming to up, up, us up at 6L? How many are going to see Corinne Sullivan, Shirley Tan, and Claremont? Um, what are the pediatric supports that we can put in place um, to um, do a warm handoff and continue, continue recovery and um, a good start for the babies? Some maternal program outcomes. Robust screening and intervention program in OB settings. Um, uh, over 80% of moms are being screened for substance misuse, being asked the question on a tablet. Um, participants are receiving the recommended number of prenatal visits. On average, 14.6 prenatal visits, six of which happen at River Mill at the Moms in Recovery Program. Um, maternal weight gain is in the desired range. And prenatal education um, uh, about what to expect is happening regularly. Uh, estimated gestational age at delivery is greater than 38 weeks. Some neonatal outcomes mean birth weight is greater than uh, 2.5 kilos. Fewer than 15% require treatment for NAS, three-day reduction in length of stay when neonates require treatment. Most of that is, I would say, is not due to this program, but is really due to the Cuddler program eating, sleeping, consoling, really what's happening on the inpatient side. So I, I don't want to attribute some of those improvements to the Moms in Recovery Outpatient Program. Much of it is due to some the wonderful inpatient work that's, that's been happening. Also greater than 80% initiate breastfeeding, and I think that's, again, largely due to early supports and the environment in the newborn nursery. That's a, that's a very good um, rate. But let's look at what happens over time after leaving the hospital. So these are breastfeeding rates by co-location of service. Coordinated care is not the Moms in Recovery program. Coordinated care is we've, where we've got separate sites and we're talking to each other. So if you're getting care at OB at APD or over on 5L and you're getting pediatric care somewhere else. At hospital discharge, Coordinated care breastfeeding rates are 73% and they go down to the postpartum visit to 12%. They really drop off. The co-located care, which is the Moms in Recovery program, that is that integrated co-located care, starts at 80% and that first postpartum visit around, eight, around six weeks has a breastfeeding rate of around 50%, which is really encouraging. Um, much of this is a look forward. Um, trying to come up with a framework for how do we follow kids, how do we measure success, what do we count as success going forward beyond the perinatal period. And I'll just go through this quickly. There are several buckets. How is mom doing? 
Is mom in recovery? Is she in treatment? Does she have primary care herself? Has she made a birth control decision for or not? Um, what's her smoking status? How is the family? Um, is there a history of foster care? Is there current foster care? Is the father involved? Um, are, there child, are there child care options? Social determinants of health? Do you have a car? Do you have a job? Would also fall into this bucket. What are the birth and neonatal outcomes? You know, what, what's birth like? What's the birth weight? Is NAS treatment required? How long are you staying in the hospital? How is the child right now at, at this point in time? Is the weight above 5%? How is development? What's the weight for length? Is there breastfeeding? Is the child receiving preventive services that we, that we know and believe um, makes a difference to the trajectory of growth and development? Are immunizations up to date? Is there an established medical home? Are they getting vitamin D, which is a standard of care? Um, lead screening, developmental screening. And then finally, utilization. Um, there's utilization we want to see. There's utilization we don't want to see. Are there ED visits? Are there ambulatory care sensitive ED visits? Are you enrolled in WIC? Are you getting early intervention? Are you enrolled in well child care? Um, we've done some qualitative analysis of postpartum women with opioid use disorders, and here are some themes that have emerged um, What we hear uh, with um, some representative quotes. Parents value reflective and nurturing parenting skills. Um, I learned I need to have a calm voice because my baby feeds off of my energy. I realized I need to take care of myself first, and now that I like and feel more comfortable with myself, I can take better care of my baby. Discipline as a teaching rather than punishment. When I need to point out, when I need to point out negative behavior to my children, I now always point out something positive first. This has had an impact on them, and now they didn't get so defensive like they used to. He responds better when I explain things, and now there's less power struggle. Group dynamics, just being together with other moms in recovery, valued by parents. To know I was not alone and that there were other people out there going through what I was. I like the accountability, would often think of my commitment during the week and take action because I knew I'd be asked about it in group. Pregnancy is a change point. This is from some work that um, Daisy um, and Liz, Liz Saunders, sitting right up here, have been working on. Um, I mean, just finding out that I was pregnant did give me hope. And once he found out as well that I was pregnant, he really, he got quiet because this is not the way we can live. We're living very, very harmfully. We went to the store and got a honey bun and looked at each other and we were like, what are we going to do? We got to start being honest. We can't keep hiding this. It made me feel like, wow, I really have to, not just for myself, but I've got a reason to stop. And then immediately made things worth trying to see an end to it. Um, there were a lot of comments about uh, barriers, communicating about drug use, um, dealing with the healthcare system, and us. You think you're going to go to a place, and you know you get like looked down upon, and you know like not really cared about, just because you know they care more about saving the baby and getting the baby than you know your feelings. Trauma. Dealing with trauma. My mom was, my mom had gone off a rocker and it made me feel horrible about myself all the time. I'd been sexually abused and like whenever I did drugs, the tight like ball would just, that was my chest, just like it went away. It made it so much better until the next time. As far as pap smears and everything, I had a real hard time. There are reasons why women have drug and alcohol problems. You're sick of feeling sad and sick. So what are we learning? What works? 
co-location of services work, collaboration works, team-based approach to care, um, working together, talking with each other as a team. Engagement is key, engagement with families. We must be patient with our patients. It takes time to develop trust and a therapeutic relationship. Continuity is important. And our patients are resilient. A little bit of treatment, a little bit of belief, a little bit of strength recognition goes, can make a very big change. So that's Paige in the middle. She turned one yesterday. She's four months old in that picture. Um, and that's her mom, Cassidy. She's been a really outspoken, and um, she was nervous at first, but she, she was on WMUR a couple weeks ago. Um, she is from Claremont. She was living in a trailer in the fall, wasn't really insulated. Um, housing has been an issue for her, um, but she um, has found a better place to live. She's living with her parents right now. Um, she's got a job at Fujifilm. Um, she's working there. Um, she's been in recovery for over a year and a half, and Paige is beautiful. She's developmentally right on target, and um, these guys are heroes to me. So what next? Um, I've got a few slides after this, but I would say two things. One is we see and hear things as pediatricians that no one else hears and sees. We've got to talk about the unmet need. We have to say that identifying an opioid epidemic as a public health crisis without funding or a plan at the front of the federal level is unacceptable. It's ill-informed, it's inadequate, and it's not something that we can stand for as pediatricians. Second, I think we need to look at how we provide care. Look at what we do every day and think about what if we treated addiction in kids and in parents as the chronic condition that it is, what would our care look, look like? So OB has developed what they're calling a purple pod, which is basically a recovery front up on 5L, um, not at the River Mill program. And they've asked, like, what would it look like? What would recovery-friendly care look like? And so um, we're also doing this in the pediatric clinic. We're just getting started. The idea was begun in OB. But how do we design care around the dyad, where it's not just the mom who's the patient or the child who's the parent, patient? but how do we think about both of them? A lot of this design is, is being guided by parent advisors. These are moms in recovery who are helping us design this. And we're finding that smaller, flexible teams and scheduling is, is absolutely essential. Um, role of recovery coaches, not just developing therapeutic relationships, but connecting to community resources is a key part of the model. And that for every member of the team, having a trauma-informed approach is key. Um, there is an emerging Center for Addiction, Recovery, Pregnancy, and Parenting, which is a collaboration between psychiatry, OB, and pediatrics. Um, Julie Frew, Daisy Goodman, Maggie Minnick have been really um, helping pull this together. I am a part of this as well. Um, we've gotten some seed money from the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation to develop um, what they asked us to do was to develop a center of excellence that would provide some consultative services to the state of New Hampshire, um, define a model, help replicate a model, and do some studying. And we have a grant from the American Academy of Pediatrics, Healthy People 2020 grant, to develop this within pediatric practices. And as Keith alluded to um, just, just uh, two weeks ago, week and a half ago, um, we learned that we um, were awarded a 21st Century Cures grant, $2.7 million over the next um, 18 months to spread the moms in recovery outpatient um, model to eight sites in New Hampshire. So those eight sites, one of them is Lebanon, we're already there, 
but it includes Littleton, um, Berlin up in Coas County in the north. Um, it includes um, Laconia in the center of the state, um, Dover, Manchester, Nashua, and Keene. And I'll end with this. Um, this is a wonderful book for those who have not read it, Sam Canone's Dreamland, and I love this quote. The antidote to heroin is not Narcan, it is community. And I will end on that. Thank you. I should, I should say this counts as opioid education CME, one hour for all of you folks. <laughs> One last one question in the back. I just had a question, Dr. Chapman, about um, the drug screen positive in the third trimester. Was it the same drugs as you saw mostly in the first trimester when 80% were positive? So that, that's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that question. Um, Liz? Um, in the third trimester, it was primarily cannabis. Okay, oh, yeah. Whereas initially, um, I think a lot of it was opioid drugs. Well, I think that was a tour de force, and we'll, we'll leave it on, on Steve's last comment about community. And welcome, Lucy. We'll see you before he heads over to Riverbell. So thanks again.